Please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord once more to ask God's blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, your servant Moses prayed to you, how will it be known that we are your people unless you yourself go with us? So we pray now, would you make us sensible of your presence here with us by your Spirit? Would you give us communion with Christ in the preaching of your word? Would you say, you promise that you are watching over your word to perform it? So watch over it now as it's preached. And you tell us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So Father, would you give us a greater appetite for your word? Make us hungry for your word. And fill all those who hunger for righteousness. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You know, there's a way of reading the book of Ecclesiastes that can seem depressing. If you're not careful, you can come away with a misunderstanding that Kohelet is just a grumpy old man who starts all of his sentence with, And another thing! Right? Like it sounds like he's moving from thing to thing to thing that he doesn't like about life and how life works. But that's a misreading. Yes, Ecclesiastes is a long, hard look at a broken, fallen world in all of its senselessness. That's true. But at multiple points along the way, he gives us glimpses of how to be content in a frustrating world. This morning, if you'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes 5.8, Ecclesiastes 5.8, we'll think together through chapter 6, verse 9, and we'll see the author answering the question, what is good in this life? What's good in this life? He answers that question in four stages this morning, and in typical fashion, he works through the negative before encouraging us in the positive. But if this is your first Sunday with us in the book of Ecclesiastes, you may be wondering, why did he call the author Kohelet? I don't even know what that means. Kohelet is from the Hebrew word that means to gather. And so we're understanding the author to be one who gathers information from observations about this world, and he gathers conclusions that he's drawing from looking at this world And also looking at God's word and saying, how do these match up? I read God's word and it says this. I look out on this world and man, it doesn't seem ordered like the word of God would have it to be ordered if this God is ruling it. And I'm confused and this is hard. So he's gathering these observations. He's gathering conclusions from the observations. And then he's gathering God's people to share the conclusions that he has gathered. So Kohelet, gatherer, is actually the perfect name for this author. But again, he's answering the question in our passage, what is good in this life? And he moves from the negative to the positive. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through chapter 6, verse 9. 
If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God too. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I would dare say this guy has thought to the bottom of life more deeply than you and I. We have trouble understanding this stuff. What are you talking about? Snap out of it, dude. Go to lunch. (laughs) Smile. It's not that bad. But he's thought through these things. He's looked at life. He's taken a long, hard, honest look. And he's like, man, this is... This is tough. What is good in life? Typically, starts with a negative. First, public corruption is no good. (laughs) Public corruption is no good. Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9. But it's not surprising. Oppression is real. 
Poor people are used as pawns by politicians who make big promises and never really intend to deliver on them, simply to get their vote. Rich people make predatory loans to poor people knowing they won't be able to pay them back and then foreclosing on the property. Happens all the time. Causes recessions. Causes banking crises. Judges sometimes get bought off. Lawmakers are beholden to either corporate fat cats or labor unions. Bureaucrats and technocrats are too cozy with politicians. It's all over the place. Corruption in public office is all over the place. But oppression and corruption are not surprising. They're tragic, they're immoral, but not surprising. Why not? Well, because the biblical theology of man is true. The biblical teaching about humanity is true. People are corruptible, corrupt, and corrupting of others. In the very first evaluation of fallen man in the Bible, Genesis 6-5, every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. If that's what humanity is, I don't know why we're so surprised to see corruption in government or oppression economically. It doesn't make it right. But it does make it so that we're not surprised by it when it happens. In fact, the Bible has a beef with the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau taught that individuals are naturally good, and it's only society that corrupts them with all its hypocritical expectations of people. Now, you may have never read Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You may have never even known his name. You may not be able to pronounce his name. That's okay. You don't have to. But I bet that you recognize that worldview that I just said. Individuals are good in themselves, and the only thing that corrupts them is a bad society. You've heard that before. But the Bible says the problem with individuals is not society. The problem with individuals is the individuals themselves. Society does not corrupt an otherwise pristine person. Corrupt people corrupt society when corrupt people get together to form societies made up of corrupt individuals. And when one of these corrupt people rises to rule the rest of the corrupt people, corruption is the inevitable result. This anthropology, this study, this logic of man is part of the reason for the American experiment to begin with. Can we hold our leaders accountable since we all know that corruption in leadership is inevitable without accountability? Can we set up a governance structure that minimizes corruption by maximizing accountabilities? Checks and balances. Now, we all know America is far from perfect, but at least we live in a country whose governance still reflects traces of the biblical view of man and accounts for them. And this corruption in public office is top-down, whether it's coerced or covered up. And I'm not sure if the higher-ups are coercing corruption from the top down or are covering up corruption from the top down. But either way, it's not good. People who oppress others do so not to serve people under their power, but to serve people who are in power over them. They're all just trying to stay in office. Power 
though, would not be a problem for us if we ourselves had no problem resisting sin and the abuse of power. Human sinfulness is the problem. Our problem with power is that the only people who can exercise it come from the class of people known as sinners. Society is simply the aggregation of sinners in time and space. And yet it is that society that forms the pool from which we must inevitably pick our leaders. But the alternative to corruption in verse 8 is cultivation in verse 9. And maybe this is what the author sees as good in public life and in the public square and public leadership. Public office facilitates the cultivation of natural resources into public prosperity. The right use of public office is to facilitate and promote public flourishing and prosperity. Cultivated fields. Now, you may have a different translation in your lap. I think this translation is probably the best. If you want to talk to me about that afterwards, you can. But the way the Greek translation of the Old Testament from the 1st or 2nd century B.C., translates this, which is a great early, early commentary on the Old Testament. It tells you how early Hellenized Hebrews thought about the Old Testament. It's a pretty good take, and it's the one that I think our translation, the ESV, is based on. Cultivated fields. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. Cultivate, keep, expand the garden. Make the whole world teem with living images of God and faithful procreation. And make the whole world a fruitful temple habitat for God to live with His living images, humanity. Good governance facilitates, coordinates, promotes, and protects the use of this world for the good of humanity and the glory of God. Fields. Used, cultivated, mined, economically developed are gain for a land, for a country. A land gains not by being left alone, but by being developed responsibly. So governments can coordinate flourishing through things like roads, transportation guidelines, shared standards and metrics. Governments can protect flourishing, mainly through the preservation of law and order, through the impartial enforcement of things like property rights and contract laws, and through providing defense against foreign aggression and oppressions. This is the right use of the sword. Sometimes it's necessary for governments to engage in commercial regulation to curb economic negligence or dishonesty. Sometimes we need a government to do that like maintaining accurate weights and measures or universal standards of workmanship. But this should be for the protection of life, like making sure that you have adequate railings on high-rise rooftops or strong enough glass and skyscraper windows or the, or, or the protection of justice, as in banking regulations that protect unqualified borrowers from predatory lenders. Government-enforced commercial regulations should probably be light, so as not to obstruct, but rather facilitate good business, not heavy-handed or burdensome, especially with respect to permits or licenses to get into business to begin with. And governments can promote prosperity 
and development and flourishing through providing both wise incentives and wise constraints for business creators, families, and owners. But in all of this cultivation, in all of this facilitating of cultivated fields, there's also limitation. The king is not committed to idyllic, ideological, or idiosyncratic forms of justice, whether that's equality of outcome on the one hand, economically, or a kind of anarchic self-rule and a corrosive brand of deregulation on the other hand that just lets everybody get away with everything. The king's task, the ruler's task of facilitating prosperity is much simpler than all that and much more down to earth. It's actually earthy, cultivated fields. The righteous ruler will also realize the eventualities of verses 10 to 17, that some people will spend their prosperity away, while others will save it in bad investments, and even a good king cannot always protect foolish people from their own foolishness. Now you may wonder, man, that's a lot to get out of one little verse. But I want, us to, I want to just help you think biblically about public issues. Christians have to learn to think biblically about public issues and meditate on what does it mean for a king to be committed to cultivated fields today. I hope I just helped you do that. But again, rulers can't do everything for us. They can't protect us from our own foolishness or from life itself and the crookedness and unfairness of life as it is. Much less can a good ruler make straight what God has made crooked in the phrase that the author uses a couple times, once in, verse, once in chapter 1, once in chapter 7. Good rulers cannot take the absurdity or senselessness out of life altogether. I'm afraid we expect them to do that sometimes. A good ruler can only commit himself against corruption and to cultivation. These are the things that kings, public rulers, should commit themselves to, facilitating cultivated fields. That's just sensible ruling. Don't make promises you can't keep or laws people can't follow. Don't make economic development harder than it needs to be. Incentivize industriousness, honesty, faithfulness, all the things that it takes to cultivate fields. Disincentivize sloth, crime, and unfaithfulness things that make fields unprofitable. Prosecute the guilty, vindicate the innocent, make justice impartial to ethnicity and class. Create and maintain a peaceable environment where businesses, farms, families, and firms can flourish. Don't create state-sponsored theft by overtaxing producers, only to give that tax to corrupt politicians or able-bodied people who consume without producing. Incentivize innovation and job creation. All of this is how a king expresses commitment to cultivated fields. And of course, whenever we talk about a king, how could we not talk about King Jesus as the incorruptible king of all kings? He rules over and above all kings, whether they believe in him or not, whether they submit to him or not. He rules over all kingdoms. The nations rage against him. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed, but God has set King Jesus on his eternal throne. He rules the kingdoms of men as creator, sustainer, and judge. And he rules the church 
as Redeemer and Covenant Lord. He calls everybody everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Him for reconciliation to the God who created and sustains them. To give them life incorruptible in the new heavens and the new earth that come down from God alone and that no human king can create. And this Jesus said, the fields are white for harvest. Pray to the Lord that He would raise up workers for His harvest, the harvest of souls. And so we plant and we water in the field of God, and God causes the growth. Secondly, private greed is no better. If public corruption is no good, we're trying to answer the question, what's good in life? What do I do with the good things in life that God has given me in this life? How do I use this life and the things of this life that God gives me? Well, public corruption is no good. Don't do that. King committed to cultivated fields. That's good. That's public good. But private greed is no better than public corruption. You know, sometimes we act like that. We would never say that, of course. But sometimes we act and live as if, well, I hate public corruption. And we act like the reason we hate public corruption is because it hinders our private greed. So Kohelet, gatherer of observations, gatherer of the assembly of God's people, has just been observing that political corruption should never surprise us. The opposite of corruption was a king committed to cultivated fields, the robust support of the economy. But even when you have cultivated fields, it seems, satisfaction with their profits is elusive because of the saving-spending conundrum. What do I do with the profit of that cultivated field once I get it. Let's say we have a marvelous, wonderful king, a wonderful president who knows all the right buttons to press on the economy, and it just starts clicking on all cylinders for you. Now what? You're making twice as much, three times as much as you were making two or three years ago? What are you going to do with it? What are you going to spend it on? What are you going to invest it in? It's wonderful to dream about having money until you get it. You're like, now what? Now what do I do? Because the prosperity of cultivated fields is not immune to loss, even loss that is the fault of the one who earns and owns it. And ironically, people often lose money precisely because they love it. You know those guys who love their cars to death? waxing that thing. And all of a sudden, they were like, man, I got a bunch of wax scratches on my car. You loved it to death, man. Quit loving your car. People do that with money. They love it to death just in different ways. Some love it to death by spending it. Others love it to death by saving it. Either way, neither the big saver nor the big spender is satisfied with his money when he loves money and puts all of his affection and hope and trust and value and identity and security and significance into it. In 5, 11, and 12, big spenders might spend on durable goods that ironically don't endure because the more you have, the more people there are who glom onto you and want a piece of the pie. The entourage expands, the family grows, desires increase, the pie disappears. You get a raise... 
and then you get pregnant. <laughs> right? You get a bonus, and then you blow a tire. Yep, that's how it goes, man. That's how it goes. Money has wings, flies away. Either way, big spender loses satisfaction in money by the way he uses money. Even if he spends on perishable goods like food, throwing big banquets, they overeat and then they lose sleep. And then they think, life isn't that good because I can't sleep. Waking up with heartburn at 2 o'clock in the morning, then you ruin your work day because you overate. You don't even know what to do with your prosperity to keep you happy. 5, 13 to 17, though, the big savers, ironically, lose the wealth that they try to keep due to bad investments. They keep money to their own hurt. That's a possibility. Let me say that again. They keep money to their own hurt. Conservatives, conserving money to their own hurt. I just want to keep it. I want to keep it. I want to save it. I'm going to need it later. I'm going to need it later. I'm going to need it later. And then the bottom falls out of the economy. They lose it precisely by not spending it. They invest poorly. The stock tanks in the end. They have nothing to pass on to the next generation for all his work, for all his self-discipline and self-denial and saving. The big saver ends up no better off than the day he came out of his mother's womb. Yet he doesn't even have to wait till the end of his life to experience the aggravation of the loss because even in the middle of his toil, all his days, the text says, he eats in darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. You know these kind of people. You work with them. He just can't bring himself to enjoy his wealth by spending some of it on himself and those he loves and others who need it. He's miserly. Matthew Henry said, A man can make himself no more happy by hoarding an estate than by spending it. Many a man has ruined his estate by being over-eager to advance it and make it more. Compound interest, compound interest, compound interest, compound interest. The hot stock tip. Matthew Henry goes on, Riches are perishing things, and all our care about them cannot make them otherwise. Riches are perishing things, and all our care about them cannot make them otherwise. Friend, do you love money? You realize you don't have to have money to love it. Look not only at how you spend money, look at how you save it. How hard is it for you to part with money? Maybe this was the passage Paul had in mind when he said in First Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, 
and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with this, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Vain, senseless, absurd, like Ecclesiastes. Those kind of desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Having money is not the sin. If you have money, I'm not here to make you feel guilty about it. It's fine for you to have money. Praise God. That's your lot. Depending on how you got it. It's loving money that is the sin. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.28 to work hard so that we have something to share with those in need. Not just to meet my needs, but to meet other. I need to be able to work hard enough so that I don't just meet my needs, but that I can meet other people's needs too. I should have something extra. It tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.12 we should work so that we are not dependent on others. 2 Thessalonians 3 says if anyone's unwilling to work, let him not eat. It is good and necessary to earn a living for yourself and your family. Financial independence is actually commanded by God for those who are able-bodied and able-minded. But loving money by aiming for ultimate satisfaction in what we can buy or identity in what we drive or wear or eat or security in what we save, that is love of money. Far better to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. You know how you break your love of money? You let it go. Giving money away to people who need it is the best way to cure love of money. Let go of it. What are you saving it for anyway? Again, none of this is to say you shouldn't save for the day when you outlive your ability to make a living so that you can still be independent. None of this is to say that. But, again, how hard is it for you to part with money? But, of course, none of that is the point of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is not asking, what can I invest in outside of or beyond this world? Ecclesiastes is now asking the question, what in the world is good? If political corruption is bad, if personal greed is no better, then what in the world is good? What in this world is good to do with the this-worldly goods that I have in this world and that I can't take out of this world? How do I use the world, even enjoy the world, without loving the world? Now, there's the trick. So, point three of the sermon, what in the world is good? This is Ecclesiastes 5.18 to 6.6. Well, enjoying God's goodness to you in this life for what it is, not what it's not. That's good. Enjoying God's goodness to you in this life for what it is. That's good. Enjoy eating and drinking. Now, lover of brisket... This does not mean you have a blank check to overeat. And I'm a lover of brisket, so I'm preaching to myself. 
<laughs> now, this author just criticized the rich for being so full after dinner that they can't sleep. He's saying, look, that's not good. Overindulgence is not good. Nor is he telling us to take no thought or precaution for the future and only to live in the now. He's telling us to savor this life. Savor it. Relish the life God gave you. Appreciate it for what it is without wishing it were something that it is not. Taste the truth that God is good at the potluck this afternoon. God is good. The food you're going to eat in the basement of this church is proof to you that God is kind. And He wants you to enjoy the life that He has given you. He does not want you to enjoy it to the neglect of the life to come. He doesn't want you to enjoy it sinfully. He wants you to enjoy it gratefully and in holiness and righteousness and generosity to others to welcome them into your enjoyment of it. All God's gifts to us in this life are like good food. You use it, you savor it, and just like that it's gone. I sometimes wish there were a way that I could extend the pleasure of eating raspberries. I mean, most of you guys know I love raspberries. I love them. I could eat a whole little tray of them on my own. I could eat two trays. But... I keep noticing every time I eat a raspberry, I'm like, ah, that didn't last long enough. And so I go and eat another one. <laughs> that didn't last very long either. But then you've got to reflect, like, but, but God made that raspberry. And he made my taste buds to love raspberries. But then it's a small little raspberry. And it doesn't last very long. So what does that mean? What, what do I infer about reality and God and myself and his goodness from the eating of raspberries? I infer, I think... God is so good that He gives me these little pleasures that hardly last a couple seconds and they're over. And it's like, yeah, that was good, wasn't it? Okay. Next thing. I just wanted you to have that. We're done now. We can move on. God's good. There's little gifts. He's thoughtful. He likes to give us good things. You use it, you savor it, and it's gone. That's life. That's all of life. So don't look to it for significance and comfort and meaning and identity and purpose. I don't find purpose in eating raspberries. I just enjoy them. I mean, you would really make fun of me if I ordered my whole life around raspberries. Like, what is wrong with this guy? I mean, he's talking too much about raspberries as it is. Look at all of God's goodness to you in this life as a good but temporary gift that leads you to wonder, who wanted me to savor that? That was so good. Who gave me that? Knowing that it was just going to be momentary. He's like, I know, it's just, it's just fleeting, but enjoy it while it lasts. 
God did that for you. God did that for you. And he'll do it again and again and again and again because he's good. Now, women, I'm going to tread lightly here. But I'm going to tread. God does not want you to be bulimic or anorexic. He wants you to be grateful for your body and your food, which means accepting both your body and your food, thankfully, without acting either guilty for eating or greedy in eating. Food is meant for the body and the body for food. That's true. But there's coming a day when God will destroy both and he will give you a new body. Your body does not define you because it too is temporal. You won't have your body forever. You won't have this one. Your soul defines you, woman. It's your soul that will inhabit the perfect body God will give you in the new creation. So don't be dominated by the food that feeds your body. Don't be dominated by the image of your body. Don't be greedy greedy in eating too much. Don't feel guilty in eating too little. Be grateful and enjoy your portion as a gift from God's good hand. You know, that struggle, bulimia, anorexia, that's very often rooted in a fear of man, quite literally a fear of man. There is, quite frankly, a fear of one or two men. (laughs) Right? You, You want the attention of a man, or you are afraid that human society is going to look down on you for what your body is. That's fear of man. But what is Ecclesiastes counseling you to do? And how is Ecclesiastes counseling you to fear your life? Fear God. Fear God and keep His commandments. You fear the God who gave you your body and live your life in your body. Don't try to live somebody else's life and try to make their body your body. And enjoy and see good in your work. Find enjoyment in all the toil with which you toil under the sun. Now that, I don't don't know that a lot of us are really good at that. Some of us are. Some of us love our jobs. But friend, don't be sour and dour and dank all the time in your job. What What if you're the boss, right? And all of your employees are always grumbling and complaining about the work that they have to do. Eventually, that says something about you, doesn't it? Don't you like the company? Don't you like the work that we do? Don't you like how I manage? Don't you? Well, why can't you work with a happy face? What did I do? Was see, a bad attitude in your work, that reflects on God eventually, because God gave you that work. Yes, life is full of work, and work is toilsome, and toil is necessary, 
but don't ruin your life with a bad attitude towards your work, your chores, your responsibilities. You doing your job, doing your homework, doing your chores around the house, doing your errands, repairing what's broken, picking up other people's slack, all of that has to be done. And God is good. He's kind. He wants to benefit you. He wants to benefit other people through the work you do. He wants you to enjoy the toil and labor that He's given you to do. He is a craftsman who delights in His craft. God's like that. God's a creator. He loves what He creates. He loves to create. So will you find enjoyment in that aspect of your humanity, your work? Will you reflect God's image by enjoying the work that God has given you to do. You're made in His image to work six days and rest on the seventh as He did in the creation week. Now, this enjoyment of work, this is a learned skill for many of us. This does not often come naturally to love working. We have a hard time overcoming our natural selfishness and pride our ingratitude and anger, our sense of entitlement to better and more, our lethargy, our apathy. We can't seem to get out of our own emotional way in order to enjoy the goodness of God to us in our work, even with all of its absurdities and senselessness. But God wants us to enjoy not just the rewards of toil, but the toil itself, the work, the craft, the trade, the skill, the chore. See the good in the service that your work provides for others. After all, work is not part of the fall. God created Adam to work the garden and to keep it. That's why God put Adam there. And that's before the fall, not after. Work is good. Adam was to work and keep the garden, to cultivate its productivity, to expand its borders, and to protect it from predators. That was before sin. So think about this. Think about this. Even if we had not fallen into sin, we'd still be working together in God's world. Work is part of God's good creation. It's how God invited us into His own creative work. Listen, God wants us to cultivate what He created. Isn't that marvelous? God's welcoming you into His creativity. Hey, I created this, and I created you to cultivate this part of what I created. Now get after it. Do a good job. And enjoy it. And relate to me in it and through it. And honor me in your attitude towards it. That's a privilege. You know when you're a kid and you're working with your dad? And your dad's like, hey man, I started the screw. Why don't you tighten that down? You're like, you're going to give me the screwdriver? And if it's a power tool, it's even better. Drive that thing. I love that sound. Like God's inviting you into that with him. Hey, finish this. Make this better. Make this more fruitful. Make this come out with good things for other people. That's work. That's good. We should want to do that. 
Of course, after sin, work becomes toilsome. The ground works against us with thorns and weeds, and that was at God's command as a consequence for our sins. Since we decided to work against God's authority, God made the ground work against us. You see how that is a law of retribution? We, the creature, sin against the creator, the authority over us. So he says, oh, is that what you like? Well, let's, have, let's see how you like it when I make the ground beneath you bear thorns and thistles and work against you like you worked against me. But friend, this is still God's good world, even with the thorns. He's still seeking you out for a relationship with him in your little corner of the garden, just as he sought out Adam. Where are you? What have you done? Let me clothe your nakedness. Let me fix what you broke. Let me make a promise to make all of this all right in the end. And he sends Jesus, the serpent crusher, to live and die for you, to pay the penalty for your sins. His life, death, and resurrection prove God really is good. He's way better than we thought he was in the garden when we thought, ah, I think I really want to define right and wrong for myself. I want to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to discover that for myself uh, from under God's protection and authority. We did that and it really backfired on us. But God is so good, he sends Jesus Christ. He says, look, I'll show you how good I am. I'll show you the kind of goodness that you spurned. I'll give you my only begotten son to reconcile you to myself. How's that? You still believe I'm holding out on you? I gave you my everything, my son. What more could he give? He is good. Even in the middle of making us feel the consequences of our own sins, he is good. And this life only lasts a few days comparatively to eternity. So don't waste these few days of your life by complaining and being angry and sullen over your work all the time. Don't be George Costanza at work. Remember that? Seinfeld, I don't recommend watching Seinfeld, but I do rem- remember watching one episode where he starts this strategy of saying, you know what, I think the more you look annoyed and angry at work, the, the, the better it looks to your supervisor. So he goes around looking angry at work, you're complaining all the time. Don't be that guy at work. Don't be him. That dishonors your heavenly father who gave you that work to do. See the good in your work and learn to enjoy what you do and the good that it affords you and others with you. But, but, to enjoy your toil in life, you first have to accept your lot in life. You see, if you want to enjoy what you're doing, you have to first reconcile yourself to, okay, here I am. This is me. This is my life. These are my skills. This is my body. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. This is where I am. These are the times I live in. This is the area of the world I live in. This is my level of prosperity. Okay. All right. I'm good. Now I can enjoy my toil. Right? For this is his lot, the text says. You are who you are because God created you as you Young people, please listen to me. God made you who you are to live where you are in the family he gave you with the parents and even the brothers and sisters that you have that annoy you so much sometimes or all the time. This is your lot. I know it's not what you chose. None of us choose our lot. 
You didn't choose your lot in life. That's why it's called a lot. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose to be a boy or a girl. You didn't choose the color of your skin. You didn't choose to be adopted or biological. You didn't choose what kind of body you would have or how smart you'd be or what you'd be good at and what you'd be bad at. God chose all of that for you and more. God did that. And He didn't do it to you. He did it for you. He gave you this life that you are living as you, not as someone else. He gave you your body and your mind and your heart and your family, not someone else's. You have to stop wishing your body and your life and your skills were more like someone else's. That's not accepting your lot. You've got to accept your lot. Now, you can develop your lot. God expects you to do that. Don't bury the talent. But accept and develop your lot as you are, as God created you. God likes how he created you. And he doesn't expect you to be exactly like someone else he created. He expects you to be you, faithfully. You've got to learn to enjoy yourself, your work, and its rewards for what they are. No more, no less. And men, this is your lot. Whatever your lot is, that's it. I know it's hard sometimes. You have your job, your earning potential, your wife, your kids, your home, your church. You don't need to go through a midlife crisis. You have all of that, your life, your wife, your friends, your house, your cars, your church, your home, This is your lot in life. Enjoy it for what it is and do it with all your might before you run out of time and energy to enjoy it. Or as the Old Testament writers would say, hey man, there's no working in the grave. There's no living in the grave. You're running out of time already. Stop comparing yourself and your skill and its results to others. Oh, this other guy's way better. Oh, this other guy's got a better education. Oh, this other guy is making way more money. Oh, this other guy's... Will you stop it? Stop, stop. I know, I do it too. I'm, I'm not immune to this. I do it too. And it's a waste of time. An emotion. Enjoy your lot in life for what it is, not for what it's not. Young mom, this is your lot. I know it's hard sometimes, but God is the one who gave you your husband and your children, your home and your money and your time and your energy levels. This is your toil. I know there are thorns. I know there are problems. I get it. But the thorns have not choked out all the beauty of your domestic garden, have they? Enjoy it. It's going to be over before you know it. And you don't want to regret being more frustrated by the thorns than you were delighted by the flowers. Look there in verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Look at that. The gift of God is not just the wealth and possessions but the ability to enjoy them. God is not miserly. He's generous. He's not a curmudgeon. He's not a killjoy. God loves giving. 
but he has given us all different things, different amounts of different things. And whatever he has given you, he has given you as a gift. What do we want people to do with the gifts that we have given them? When you give a gift, what do you want them to do with it? Leave it in the backseat of the car? Forget it in the trunk? Never unwrap it? No. We want them to enjoy our gifts. We want them to savor those gifts and use them for their intended purposes, delight in their usefulness, enjoy their beauty. That ability, the ability to enjoy God's good gifts to us, that ability also is a gift from God itself. You wanting what God has given you is a gift. You loving what God has given you is a gift. Why did God create things like food and marriage to begin with? Paul says it in 1 Timothy 4, while he's refuting false teachers, as people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know this tr- the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing to, is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Christian, listen, you better be really careful about how you talk about your diet and what you think everybody else ought to be eating. Remember this passage, 1 Timothy 4, 3-5. through 5. God gave us all these things for our enjoyment so that we'd look up to him and be grateful to him as a good giver. And if God doesn't give this crowning gift, the ability to enjoy, then all the other gifts only embitter and sour us further on life, as we see in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, still in the third point. Wealth without enjoyment is bad. The apparent evil is that God actually does give wealth, possessions, even honor to some people, but then God withholds from those same people the power to enjoy those goods and wealth and honor. And instead, somebody else that the guy doesn't even know enjoys them. That is Habel. That is a great evil, a natural absurdity. It's something very bad. It's sad. It's hurtful. It's unwelcome. And it's senseless. God gives some people everything their hearts could possibly desire in this world and yet withholds from them the one thing necessary to make it all a blessing, the ability to enjoy it. And there is a question there, is there not? One of my sons asked this very question as we read the passage in the truck on the way to church this morning. God gives some people wealth and all that stuff and not the ability to enjoy it, and that's an evil but God did it? And we look at that and we say, well, how could God do such a thing? Why would he? That's not fair. That's not kind. That's that's cruel. It's unjust. Is it, though? Is it? What if God did that to draw such wealthy people to come to an end of this world's pleasures experientially so they seek God and Christ and holiness and righteousness and the life to come and the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? What if he did it for that reason? 
Hey, enjoy all this. Now what? Now what do you got? You don't enjoy it, do you? Because it doesn't get into your heart. Now let me bring you to an end of all that. Now let me show you this. Let me show you these things. Solid joys, which only Zion's children know. Now, well, that would be good. That'd be a good reason to do that, right? Yeah. Or what if God did it simply as a righteous punishment and consequence for such a man's greed and selfishness and pride and ingratitude and unwillingness to acknowledge the giver of the gift? Well, I guess that would be fair too then. Yeah, that would be fair. Or what if God did it to teach all of us that not all the wealth, possessions, and honor in the world can satisfy or please our hearts if we are not reconciled to the giving God through His best gift, the death of Christ, for all of our selfish and arrogant sins against Him. Yes, that would be kind. But again, for Kohelet, that's not the point. The point is not a theodicy, a justification of God and, and the existence of evil in God's world. That's not the point. The point for him is that we need to have our own head screwed on straight when it comes to working with a good attitude and accepting our lot in life. If we don't seek God for the gift of enjoyment, then no matter how much we have, Kohelet says we're worse off than a stillborn baby. Because after all, the stillborn never had to deal with an existential crisis like this. The stillborn... Not to put too fine a point on it, he took the fast track to where we're all going anyway. The grave. That's his point. Verse 6, even if the wealthy ogre lives 2,000 years and fathers 100 children, that stillborn gets to his resting place faster and with far less trouble. The point there is not to minimize the parental pain of a miscarriage or of losing children. But grieved parent, you have no idea what a mercy it was for your children to be taken away from you by the Lord. There was a mercy in that to your child. Infant mortality is actually not the worst thing in the world. Infant mortality is indeed bad. It is awful. But something worse than infant mortality, according to Ecclesiastes, is to live long, rich, and famous, to have a great big family and a great big house with a great big reputation and find no enjoyment in any of it. That's worse. The author said, That's more pitiful than infant mortality. The life of the parents who the infant left behind might actually be more pitiful than the death the child died. That's his point. We pity the infant, 
when the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, I pity you. If you have all these things and you live all this big, long, rich, famous life with all this stuff and you find enjoyment in none of it, that's not living. Maybe you see the long living, rich, famous, big family in a big house with a big reputation and you envy them. Ah, friend, things are not always as they seem. In fact, the grieved parents of lost children can be far more content and joyful than the rich parents of six sets of healthy twins if the grieved parents are reconciled to their creator in Christ and reconciled to their lot in life from the Lord. Fourth and finally, what about these appetites of ours? What about these appetites of ours in verses 7 and 9 of chapter 6? We work in order to eat, but we eat only to feel our physical appetites return with a vengeance. Our appetites for food are only satisfied temporarily. You're hungry, but you eat. Then you inevitably get hungry again. Same thing for thirst. Same thing for companionship. Same thing for sexual intimacy or social attention or professional success. It always comes back. Human appetite is repetitive like the cycles of nature are repetitive in chapter 1. All the rivers flow to the sea, yet the sea is not full. Same thing with the human heart. Human appetites for the things of this world, we are literally insatiable. Your heart is insatiable. Your appetites are never satisfied for good. Not even for long. And the very resilience of our appetites, the fact that they always come back, is part of the absurdity of life and work in a fallen world. No matter how much you eat at the potluck today, tomorrow, you're going to be hungry. And you're going to be like, I thought I was never going to be hungry again as much as I ate at that potluck. And sure enough, you're going to eat dinner tomorrow night. If appetites always return, whether you're wise or unwise, then what's the point of being so wise? If wisdom can't even satisfy my appetite, come on, man. Why am I reading so many books then? Why am I trying to be so wise if I still get hungry? So is it really wise to be wise if your own appetites return just like the fool's appetites return? Your wisdom hasn't satisfied your appetites. You still want food and drink and sex and success just like the fool wants them all the time. So he ends up in, in, sec, in this, see, ends the section in verse 9 with a warning against growing appetites. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. What does that mean? That's, a one, that's just a tantalizing little phrase, isn't it? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Well, remember how he said, accept your lot and find enjoyment in your work because that's God's gift to you in this world? This is the same idea. Better is the sight of the eyes. In other words, it's better for you to just look at and enjoy and experience what God has given you in this life then let your heart wander after a fantasy, a mirage, a life as you might like it to be. In the immortal words of those R&B philosopher queens from the 90s, TLC, don't go chasing waterfalls. Don't chase the risky investment. Don't Wonder what it'd be like if you were married to somebody else. 
Listen, your spouse is the one that the all-wise, all-knowing, generous God gave you. No one could have been wiser in picking your spouse for you. And I'm not saying that you have to stay in a dead-end job the rest of your life. If you need to retool or reskill, then do it. But live your life. Develop the skills God gave you. Don't waste time sad that you don't have the body or job or spouse that God gave someone else. It's the wandering of our appetites, the wandering of our hearts. That's what's absurd. You have a life, skills, interests, abilities, relationships. Go after it with all God's God's given to you in reality. To fantasize about a life God didn't give you is absurd because that's not living in reality. And you're disparaging the goodness of a generous and all-wise God. Friend, your life is God's gift to you. Your life is God's gift to you. It doesn't mean you can't improve what He's given you, but it does mean you should work with what you've got rather than wishing you were someone you're not. Be grateful to the one who gave it to you. That's the only way you're going to be content. Don't let your heart go after what God has clearly forbidden in His Word or clearly not given you in His providence. This life, your life, is God's gift to you. If you can enjoy this life as God has given it to you, then that enjoyment is also God's gift. If you have trouble enjoying the gift of this life, of your life, ask God for the ability to enjoy it because that comes from Him too. But friend, this life is not God's best gift because God subjected this world to futility, to absurdity, as the consequence of our own absurd rebellion against His law and love. God's best gift is His Son, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to suffer all of our sin and its absurdity for us. He died as the righteous for the unrighteous, the wise for the fool, the innocent for the guilty, to pay the penalty of our sins against God. And because he was sinless, God raised him from the dead to new and everlasting life. And that is the life, eternal life, that we can have now, even in the midst of this life, as confusing and disappointing as it often is. This eternal life is life minus the absurdity. A life that sorts out the absurdity and makes sense of our relationship to God in this world. But you have to repent of your self-direction, your stubbornness, your pride, your self-righteousness, your anger at God. You have to trust in Jesus, that He is the only one who can and will take all the absurdity out of your life. There is still much good in this life, but the best is yet to come. So praise God for His indescribable gift, not just this life, but the Son of God who redeems us from the sins and sorrows and absurdities of this life and grants us life glorified and everlasting. Know Christ, and you will know that life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would be grateful for the life that you have given to us individually. We would maximize it for your glory, that we would not complain or compare, that we would enjoy the work that you have given to us to do, that we would do it with all our heart, 
as unto you and not as unto men. We pray that we would learn to enjoy the rewards that you have given in this life for our work, that we would share them with others, that we would see them as a gift of your goodness, a token of your kindness to us. And that we would say thank you. And that we would embrace our humanity, our creatureliness before you as our creator. And that we would say with all your other creatures, we look to you, we look to you to open your hand and to give us our food at the right time and you do give it to us and we gather it up. Thank you. Help us to embrace what you have made us and not to wish you had made us something else. Help us to obey you in what you have called us to do. Help us to be joyful. Help us to see good and to learn to enjoy the work that you have given us to do and that our joy would redound to your glory and to the glory of your goodness in giving us the work that you have given us to do. May we consider it a privilege. And that in all this, may we never forget that true life is life everlasting and that your son, Jesus Christ, is not only the way and the truth, but he is the life. May we know him. And in knowing him, may we know what to do with this world as we await the world to come. For Jesus' sake. Amen.